Thank you very much. Welcome all to the, uh, the FinTech panel. The topic of today's panel is disrupting the financial system from the outside of the inside. But uh, the panelists and I were, were arguing whether we could uh, disrupt this panel and talk about feminism, given that we have three women on the panel. And we're very excited to have these panelists here today. So I wanted to open up with some scope to give you some sense of what we'd like to talk about. And then um, we'll hand over to the panelists to introduce themselves individually. And there are a series of questions and discussion points we'll go through. So we're all here because we probably know what FinTech means and what that kind of represents. But today's panel has been created in a very specific way. And there are essentially two sides to FinTech. The one is uh, tr traditional, very, very successful businesses that have existed for hundreds of years, in many cases in the UK specifically. And that is the one side. And on the other side, we have FinTechs, challengers, disruptors, innovators, and we've characterized them as being the opposite of those sort of traditionally successful businesses. And so I won't introduce my panelists, I'll ask them to introduce themselves, but what I'm really excited about is that most of our panelists, in fact, have, have lived at least two of those lives. Uh, in many cases, working for large established financial businesses and then going on to found their own um, service companies. And it's sometimes the opposite way around, where they've started as entrepreneurs and they've been absorbed into large businesses. So very excited for today's panelists, and now I'll just ask each of them to introduce themselves very quickly. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm Karen Kerrigan, and I'm CEO of Cedars. Uh, we're an equity crowdfunding platform, been going since 2012. Uh, we help early stage businesses, startups, and growth focused companies uh, that are looking to scale and raise money, uh, raise money through the platform in an efficient way. And on the flip side, enable investors to put as little as 10 pounds into those businesses in exchange for shares. Um, so I've been with Cedars pretty much since the beginning. Um, I probably fall into the former category uh, rather than the latter category in that uh, you know, I used to work in financial services law uh, in an international law firm called Simmons & Simmons. Um, and really my career was uh, born in the financial crisis. You know, I used to be a financial litigator and spent a huge amount of time working in, on Lehman and Lehman-related work and everything that fell out of that. Um, you know, that's as the financial services market really moved, certainly on the contentious side, from dispute res resolution to um, contentious regulatory work. I did a few more years doing that kind of thing and then uh, saw the opportunity with Cedars uh, and the rest is history. Thank you. In fact, Cedars has a, its legacy was bought under the business school. Say that so, um, yeah. Cedars was actually uh, a business school project uh, at Said, not not mine. Um, it was uh, the the love child of a guy called Jeff Lynn and another guy called called Carla Silver, uh, who both studies here. So, yeah, we've had a really good good relationship with Said over the last few years. It's a pleasure to be here. Hi everyone, I'm Diana Biggs, head of innovation uh, for HSBC's retail bank and wealth management division in UK and Europe. Um, so within that team, we're looking at partnering with fintechs and developing new business model innovations and propositions um, for our customers in UK here, but also around the world. Prior to that, I was um, a fellow, so essentially an entrepreneur in residence at Anthemis Group, which is a fintech VC and advisory firm, um, predominantly focused on blockchain and cryptocurrency for the past or five years and um, working with a number of different startups and investors but prior to that I was a management consultant with Oliver Wyman Financial Services so had worked with um, a number of the large financial institutions around the world so a bit of bouncing back and forth between um, <coughs> tech incumbents tech and incumbents again 
Okay. Hi everybody, I'm Francesca, I'm the CEO of Molo, Molo Finance, but it's probably one of the companies you know the least because we're very new. So we launched last year and the company's been started like one year and a half ago. Where we are, we are in fintech, we are really early stage and we are in the mortgage space. So we are one of those few companies that are starting to dare to challenge and disrupt mortgages, which happens to be the largest and most profitable as well kind of segment of financial service. So we're very excited about what's ahead. So if you ever need a mortgage, let me know. So, okay, and I know now it's very scary when people, when I mentioned my friends about mortgages, they're all terrified, but it won't be like that. So in one year of time, we'll be very, very excited about getting a mortgage, I promise. So, um, so I actually happened to be as well, one of those people that lived several lives before. In fact, all my career has been in a very traditional industry. I started in Magic Consulting McKinsey, several years there, moved to private equity, also very interesting moved to banking and then finally decided that actually I'd seen a lot of finance, traditional finance, but a lot of exciting things were happening outside finance. So here we are. And I'm very excited to be here. Hi, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Nick Ogden. Uh, I founded a bank uh, called Clearbank a couple of years ago, which was the first internal <coughs> bank in the UK uh, for 250 years. It sits alongside the main banks and it was designed to create competition, new opportunities, and drive forward what we're all reading about now, which is called open banking. Prior to doing that, I've done a couple of other little startups as well, one which you may have heard of called WorldPay. Uh, I found it <coughs> back in 1995, after having built Europe's first online shop in 1994. So e-commerce is my fault, I apologize. Um, and done a few interesting things, um, been very, very fortunate to build three multi-billion pound turnover startups which sounds fantastic, uh, but my role in that was really steering and recruiting the teams which you need to make these businesses work. So the only message I've got for you guys today is the teams, not you, who matter. Thank you. Nick, in fact, I want to <coughs> ask a follow-up question because I think, as we know, FinTech is a word that kind of uh, was created a few years ago and it has existed probably in many forms for, for many, many years. In fact, you may have been around before the word existed and I was, uh, Questioning Nick about this last night. <laughs> not to. Uh, <laughs> um, what is your opinion of fintech? What does it mean? And probably most important question is what is not fintech? Um, I think that I mean, if you, I mean, I'm fortunate to have been in the industry for a long time, so I can look back a bit. Um, you know, 25 years ago, this thing called the internet, the commercial internet, arrived. Uh, prior to that, you know, you used to use things called directories. Most of us transacted within a 30 mile radius of our home. Um, and so over the course of the last 25 years, we've sort of almost had this invisible tsunami which has swept through our lives. Uh, we now expect instant gratification on pretty much everything. Part of the consequences of that was that when you looked at the efficiencies that the internet could deliver, um, buying and selling things, to me anyway, seemed a sensible development for where the internet could go to. Um, so I guess fintech was, you know, from where I sit, was probably born in 1994. Um, but we didn't, unfortunately, register fintech.com and try and make a lot of money off that. But fintech's changing, changing very, very rapidly. If you look at the way that the traditional mainstream banks and the large financial services companies have responded to digital, it's appalling. They're slow, they're late. They regard changes in that market space almost as a disintermediation of their customer base, and they don't see it as an opportunity. 
Regulatory changes that started in 2009, delivered, delivered by PSD1, started what I regard was really as the first phase uh, of, of fintech change. But that was all off the back of the global financial crisis, which slowed things down. So it's taken until probably 2014, 2015 for everything to start to heat up. And that's now being met by the second wave, um, which is more of a full digitalization of the way that we all exist rather than fintech just being one component of all of that. So I think that digital stroke financial services moves forward and fintech might start to slide down a bit. Thank you. Thank you. Diana, I wondered if you would be able to comment on uh, is fintech kind of flash and pan? Is this a structured kind of way this moves forward? Nick has made some comments already about how this works, but as kind of innovation head of HSBC, how do you see that working going forward? Is this kind of period we'll look back and say that was a cute period or is this a structural shift in the way we do business with financial services? Yeah, so I would say it's already how we um, interact with our customers. So actually already over 90% of our touch points with customers at HSBC UK are through some kind of device. Um, increasingly that's a mobile phone, um, but but also some people like to, to bank on the web. So, so that's that's really the way that things already are. Um, and absolutely with, with FinTech, and I mean, I guess it depends on whether you're using that term to describe sort of a specific startup scene, or really it's just the financial technology. Um, all of our core platforms and the way that we work as a business are already, digital things are done electronically, and we have spent the last, say, three or four years ensuring that that is a platform in which we can um, create new propositions and new innovations and experiment with new technologies in a really iterative, agile way. Um, so with that base in place, um, luckily <laughs> I joined when sort of a lot of the <laughs> quit work was done. Um, and from there, we are looking to now also interact in that ecosystem. I think the ecosystem, particularly um, here in London, we're really lucky to be in a place where um, fintech is one of the, the largest and most exciting sectors and, and sort of ecosystems. And um, part of the mandate, or I'd say probably the main mandate of my team is to look at how we can interact and partner with that ecosystem. I mean, I guess that is, that is the crux of today's panel, which is how do we, uh, given these two sides to the industry, how do we kind of merge them together? Um, and I wanted, Francesca, you've recently launched your fantastic uh, business proposition and we're all looking forward to more future launches but what is your experience in working with uh, large firms um, okay so i think i would say that i think um so actually let me on the other side of the fence in the past years i actually could witness some of the development i think i see two things so on one side i think is a little bit the what and how really so on the what i think has been enormous progress in terms of on both sides of the fence so fintechs <coughs> and Incumbents, if you're on big banks, in recognizing that the two, these two worlds doesn't need to be don't need to be one against the other, but actually is an ecosystem and collaboration is good. And this has been massive. So when I was about this long time ago, um, yeah, we were looking at all these new things coming up. We say, okay, no, we need to do it, and we're going to fight them. Or how do we compete? And this was completely wrong <laughs> because. It's impossible, right? So we are competing on two different things with the wrong weapons. So now it's a completely different game. And actually every bank has a, a way of embracing innovation and has realized that there's no need to try to rebuild things. You can actually partner. So I think it's been massive 
progress in acknowledgement and awareness that actually is an ecosystem. We all work together and everybody brings to the table what they're best at, right? And especially also on the fintech side, there's been a lot of acknowledgement. Actually, the end, big banks have a huge customer base, which is very difficult to build. And there's no reason why you need to start from scratch. You build technology and you can actually, you know, it's kind of partnering up and bringing the best of the best. However, I must say, on the how, I have to say there is still a long way to go. So although there is a lot of awareness and at least my perception in both in banks and fintechs that they should collaborate, making it happen is probably more difficult and long than it should be because we are operating complete different, completely different rules of the game. And I think time is one of those. So things take a long time in big banks. Decision making is very long. Uh, and actually fintechs and early stage companies, they just need to move up quickly. So I think if there is one thing where I welcome some, I, I think there will be a way of working together that actually is a little bit more agile, that is where I think we should go. But that's been promised. So. I think one of the things we've seen is uh, large institutions trying to find a way to work with fintechs more recently. I wondered whether the panelists had any perspectives on, on what works and what doesn't, because we've, we've seen a lot of different types of models, incubators, accelerators, do we partner, platform, buy, merge, B2B, you know, there's very many different models. I wonder whether everyone had a comment about how that would work. I can speak, um, I guess, firsthand uh, looking at the interactions that we have had with traditional financial services players. Um, and I think really they fall into three categories. So either a, I'm going to call them incumbent for the sake of giving them a category, either the incumbent wants to partner with you, or wants to invest in you, or wants to imitate you. And sometimes when you're going into those discussions, so we have been um, summoned, invited, depending what word you'd like to, to use, or, or you know, on our side, pleaded, uh, to go in and have conversations with the likes of the big banks, the big asset managers, and so on and so forth. And sometimes you don't know what that conversation is going to be, whether it is going to be partnership, investment, or uh, potential imitation. And I think as a result of that, you always are slightly on your guard because the conversation can pivot to... Um, you know, from one to the other, depending on what the stakeholders in the room actually want to achieve and what they think they're learning from the conversation that you're, you're having at the time. And I think what I have seen not work is when a startup goes into, a fintech goes, goes into to, to one of these types of meetings and is prepared to kowtow and, and bend over backwards to what the in incumbent wants from them. Um, because you can very easily see, and what we have seen quite a lot in the industry, is suddenly in a relatively successful, certainly businesses that have got to Series A, suddenly be swallowed up or white label, turned into a white label platform and not pursue their own business proposition. Um, and sometimes you see those businesses then fail inside the incumbent, which is, you know, which is really sad. Um, I think the more confident fintechs can be about their proposition, both of the standalone business and the angle at which they could potentially sell in to the, you know, the bank, the asset manager, the wealth manager or whatever, that's, that's where things are actually going to happen. Because otherwise, I think you are just going to see quite a lot of these businesses just get swallowed up. Um, so there are a number of different models um, in terms of working with fintechs. Uh, at HSBC, we don't have a particular accelerator, um, and our investments arm is for strategic investments. So we actually already, as the business, need to be working with um, those fintechs first in order to pursue an investment on that side. Um, I would say that really when, when working with fintechs, it's like any other partnership. I think transparency and communication are really, really key. 
Um, and I think, uh, as Karen said, knowing what you want as the fintech to get out of it and, and then as the bank being really clear in terms of what you are um, looking for is very important because, yes, as we know, there are people and organizations that, that might pursue in sort of a fintech tourism. Um, I think it helps to have someone in the innovation team coming from a fintech background. And, and we have other people on my team that I've brought in who come from, from fintech VCs and others who can have empathy and understanding with a startup team and what that is like and really guide them through the, that process of partnership. Um, there, there's also a lot of great resources within the, the UK for doing that as well. So we've now twice used the FCA Sandbox, which is um, an initiative from the FCA's Innovate team where you can partner and work with, with fintechs. Um, many fintechs also do that by themselves, or we, you can do it in partnership with, with other organizations and to understand there and test and learn with real customers. Um, which has been a big focus for us. And there's also through Tech Nation and the HM Treasury, the FinTech Delivery Panel, of which we're a member. And, and last year, one of the pieces of work that came out of that was FinTech onboarding guidelines. Onboarding um, can be a particular pain point, you know, for, for large financial institutions when they're looking at, at IT or procurement um, services. That was designed for large-scale enterprise IT organizations, uh, not for small fintechs um, or startups that, quite frankly, might not have all of the materials that are needed in order to do that or the time to invest sort of, um, you know, a mountain of lawyers and uh, operational resources into just doing one one procurement and then also we're looking at designing those specific um like stages of onboarding that would allow for okay this is a poc with an anonymous data this is a small scale um pilot with staff and then with customers and, and how can we design pro processes that are appropriate for those various stages to to allow us to to be agile and to innovate and work together more rapidly A little bit of history, I guess. Um, until uh, a couple of years ago, the UK was dominated by four principal banks that provided what's known as agency services. Most fintechs or payments companies required to work with one of those banks to actually make their proposition work. Um, it, you know, you're all very clever people in here. It's very obvious the competition challenge that just having four to a market of 78,000 uh, potential customers created. Um, and there's, you know, many, many documented cases of markets being turned off by the historic clearing banks because the innovation in those areas was encroaching on core products that were being driven by those clearing banks. In my view, when we, you know, I started back in 2014 with the conversations with the regulators about setting up Clearbank, uh, was that in order to create an open financial services marketplace, we had to have something that was new tech savvy and independent. What that meant was that we would never get into a situation where we would compete with our customers because historically every fintech, every financial services company had some element of competition with their bank. Uh, you know, the reality is, right, every fintech needs a bank because you have to pay payroll and your suppliers and all the rest of it. But no bank really has a requirement for a fintech. And so I think one of the major changes that's occurring in the UK now uh, is there are numerous opportunities for businesses to grow and expand without the fear of being closed down 
or distracted by one of the large incumbent banks. I'm not going to go to HSBC over here this because they helped us get clear back up and running and all the rest of it. But the whole market dynamics that we live in now, now are changing rapidly, um, which will effectively, I believe, <coughs> make the market grow. And the second part of that is the core financial services market is changing. The main banks have historically been the provider of all services to consumers and businesses. That's now changing. We have an example of that here with the mortgage marketplace. And you, what you're going to see over the course of the next few years is high-speed transactional banking in real time, which means that when you make a payment, it's received by the other party uh, in a millisecond, which will be a real benefit for all of us, happening and being delivered by payment transactional specialists. Um, and set against that, you will then have portals and other service providers giving you as businesses and consumers wide choice of the financial services that you choose to use. Why is that? Yeah. So I just okay. a follow-up question on that is uh, the experience of, of the panelists today is, is really interesting for me because like I said you've Many of you have been inside and outside banks, being disrupted from the inside and disrupted from the outside. And I wondered whether um, you have perspectives from Cedars as well as from Francesco about you know, what is it like being on both sides and, and kind of the grass is always greener and then you change sides kind of thing. Exactly. <coughs> on a personal level. <laughs> <laughs> I think the question is, uh, is You've been on both sides of entrepreneurship. You've kind of been in large corporations and you've been in the ones that have been much smaller trying to disrupt them. What was your experience like changing um, sides? Well, um, I mean, I haven't, other than a uh, stint at Barclays, which I think everyone has sort of done in their, in, in their time. Um, you know, I swear, it, it, there is a bit of a Barclays mafia, isn't there? I think, um, yeah, Barclays and Betfair seem to permeate all fintech, weirdly. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, that's my only real experience of actually sitting in um, a financial services institution. I was actually a uh, traditional financial service institution. I was, you know, a, a service provider for them. Uh, I think working in a law firm is even more prehistoric uh, than working in a lot of these uh, of these institutions. So I guess on a personal level, um, there was, you know, I had a real culture shock when I moved across to, to Cedars because everything moves at, um, at, at breakneck speed. You are continually innovating, you're continually uh, reacting to the market, but also uh, trying to, uh, to to preempt the market. Um, I did just want to pick up on something that, that Nick mentioned there in relation to um, the dependency between fintech and, uh, and, and traditional banking. Um, and one comment that I think uh, really resonated with me was you know, the, the, the fintechs not needing the bank and the bank not needing the fintech. And what I've seen is a real shift is that we actually bank with HSBC. Uh, and uh, sorry, Diana, it hasn't been a positive exper experience. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, we, won't, we, won't, we won't dwell on that today. We have got an awful lot of um, Ocado and Marks and Spencer's vouchers for all our complaints, which is good. <laughs> uh, um, and you know, our, one of our uh, dependencies in terms of scalability has actually really been um, the traditional financial services institutions, including um, HPC, that we're reliant on. And for the first time this year, we actually have scope and, um, and power behind looking at uh, new digital banks to provide those services. We're looking at, a, it, it is a focused um, product development initiative this year, and at the point that we can integrate um, our customers' financial transactions um, with a digital bank, as opposed to our current service provider, um, I think that that will change our scale dynamic instantaneously. 
Um, so, sorry, I didn't directly um, answer your, uh, your question at all, um, but that's what really resonated with me. Um, okay, so to your question, I think I've actually faced both sides. I tried to innovate from within, but um, listen afterwards, and actually trying to innovate from without outside, and actually you'll probably guess why I'm outside now. So, um, I have to say it's very interesting because I feel, um, I think it's both things are very exciting, I have to say but in very different ways of working, and actually very, you feel very different challenges, very different frustrations as well. So I think fundamentally what I've seen, innovating from within, so being a big bank, and actually even wants to innovate, because it's always on the top of the agenda today, so it's always one of the first three items, you know, from a CEO agenda, you want to go digital. You have... Um, Fundamentally, yes, potentially is a lot of excitement, but reality you're fighting against yourself. And that has been my experience. So fundamentally, you're, you have a lot of backing, you have a lot of money, you have a lot of resources, a lot of people, but fundamentally you cannot move. That's <laughs> very frustrating because you, fundamentally the rules of the game that are in the bank, which is typically some type of approvals and processes and budget, they're still there. And also the incentives are not really aligned. Nobody really cares about a small digital project. Um, and so, in reality, you're not able to do much. That's been my experience. And so, your main focus, you've, it's very awkward because you have very strong backing, but you have very little execution capability. Um, and I think is fundamentally, I came to the conclusion, and again, that's a little bit my personal experience here, is that it's very difficult, really almost impossible, to really disrupt from within. So, it doesn't mean that big banks cannot disrupt. I think they can, but they need to make a conscious decision to ring fence that team and let them maybe do manage things differently. The, when you go out, oh, you're all excited and you have a lot of things, you know, you clearly can execute much quickly, but of course you let all of a sudden all this strong backing. So all of a sudden you need to fight for resources, for money, for investment. So you are in a complete different type of milestones and KPIs. So, which I think in a way is healthy because having a little bit of financial pressure and pressure to deliver pushes you to deliver. So, but then you need to, you know, if you could have strong backing and huge delivery ability, that would be the best of two worlds, but they're very different, I think, experience. Also the skill set is very different, I think. If I, I can just comment on that. Um, so I think that both founding a startup and working within one is incredibly difficult and challenging. I would say from my personal view is that doing innovation within a large corporate is even more challenging um, for some of the same, but, but other also different reasons. Um, some of those being because of the, the scale um, and that often you are trying to change such a large group rather than working with like a small select group of people who are like-minded and also want to push things in a certain direction and you have full control over that and the regulators here want to help you and, and there and people are really excited about what you're doing. Um, so how we've approached it is kind of broken it into three different challenges um, to be able to, to execute despite not being in a number of uh, large corporates in financial services and otherwise have carved out these specific initiatives or startup groups um, in order to avoid being tracked down by legacy infrastructure, um, organizational processes, et cetera, which is a really great model and from, from what I heard that also works really, really well. 
um, how we're doing it being inside the, the business, I think is a first positive step in that we are actually in the business rather than being sort of a siloed innovation team that's still within the constraints of that organization, but not within the business itself and, and having sort of the mandate and the colleagues who are working and building those digital products every day. Then um, cutting across three areas. So the first is really mindset shift and it's internal and external engagement. Um, we've here been working with HSBC University, which is um, a new learning program that we're rolling out globally with campuses all over the world, looking at how can we help our over 250,000 employees around the world really understand digital and innovation and fintech and technology and be part of that and be able to engage in self-learning and um, understand all of these new trends that are emerging within their industry. Um, also creating things like hackathons, which employees can engage in, um, platforms where everyone can share their ideas, rolling out tools like Slack, um, which took some time, but it's so helpful when you're used to working with those kinds of tools um, in a startup environment and, and then having that at scale within an organization. So, so that's really sort of a mindset and culture, internal and external engagement piece. The second is really equipping the organization for innovation. So there, there's just been um, sort of a number of core capabilities that you require in order to be able to innovate. So creating sandbox environments, working with um, the British Standards Institute and, and other banks across the UK on things like fintech onboarding and understanding how can we there improve um, uh, our own processes as well as create guidelines for the industry in order to, to make those collaborations successful. And then third part is actually doing those tests and learns and partnerships with fintechs where we um, either work independently with, with new technologies with partners like um, the Turing Institute and, and um, specialists in a particular technology or with fintechs within um, the FCA sandbox or just within bespoke pilots to, to actually run those tests. And with, within that, I would say really important is to engage with the business so that they don't feel like it's something that you as the innovation team is putting on them, but getting their buy-in and really um, being that advocate uh, across the organization so that the teams are involved, involved along the entire journey and that they will then be able to roll into production. I just want to set the record straight. I haven't worked for Barclays. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, the most interesting period of my life um, was working for a very, very short time for a man, Scottish man called Fred Goodwin. Um, and the happiest <laughs> moment of that was receiving a B45. Um, but um, going back to the change and the opportunities and everything, I think that, that we, we've got in the room which are, are real and for everybody in the audience to see, it's not for us to, to deliver. We're all running our own businesses and, and doing our own things. And, and you know, Diana and I at HSBC and Clearback, we're trying to help you guys. You know, I can't underestimate the opportunity that sits in front of you now. Um, let me just say, make one small example of that. Everybody has a sort code and a bank account number tied to something that they have, you know, loans or whatever. And historically, they have been held and tied to the main banks, you know, almost as, you know, that's something that's exclusively available to them. And if you wanted to set up a fintech, if you wanted to engage with consumers, if you wanted to provide consumer services, or you wanted to provide business services, and you wanted to drop into an account level, there was a, always a mismatch between the account numbering systems that you had to create and the account numbering systems that the banks used. That's now changed. So if you are a regulated fintech, 
um, you have a 2E money, a 2EMD license, a same D money directive license. Um, you can get access to sort codes easily. It takes at least a minute to get access to a sort code. And what that allows you to do is start to change the way that you engage with your customers so that you take a principal position with your customers in relation to providing services to them. You know, you can't do deposit taking or anything like that unless you want to go through the joy, um, and I say that um, uh, in large exclamation marks, of becoming a bank. Um, because you have to basically put together a two and a half thousand page regulatory submission. It will weigh 13 kilograms. And the Bank of England will lose the check you give to them for the license application. <laughs> so you don't need to do that. All right? What you can now do is take advantage of the regulatory regime, the massive support that you get from the FCA and the PRA. Because we're very, very fortunate because our regulators are mandated to support competition in the marketplace. If you go to Europe, to the ECB or some of the other banks, that doesn't exist. They have regulatory requirements only. They don't have this requirement to support competition. So you've got the FCA sandbox, you have a whole raft of tools that you can, you can, you can enjoy and get access to. Uh, and we know one of the messages you know, we talked last night over supper is that the time now for you is far easier than the times have been for any of us on this panel. Great, thank you. I will ask each of our panelists one last question, and then we'll open the floor up to a question from the audience. The last <coughs> question I'd like is, if you could give um, many of us in the room are aspiring entrepreneurs or even seasoned entrepreneurs, if you could give us one piece of advice from your uh, history in the world of FinTech, what would it be? Okay. You have the <laughs> Okay, I would have a lot of advice, but uh, if you, I would just say two things. I mean, um, I think, so, probably two, maybe. Yeah, so one, I think I see sometimes, especially young people, um, they have a lot of ideas, there's a little bit of a fear still associated with going into the entrepreneurial world or setting up a company or, you know, starting from scratch, and I, I understand that. In fact, I think... We are going to a generational change. I think through when actually when I was young is you know nobody would think it to set up companies the first thing they did right so there is a little bit of a transition that we went through but fundamentally I would just say just go with it because don't I mean nothing is easy and nothing is actually comes smooth but if you're really passionate about something just just go with it don't be afraid don't wait that it, the perfect moment the way that you would not be afraid because you know. Um, yeah, a lot of entrepreneurs are very self-confident, they're very, they know, it feels like they know it all, but actually don't, right? So everybody's going through a lot of mental um, doubts and just go for it, follow your passion, do it properly, build the right research around you, but don't, don't, don't be afraid, right? I think actually it's the future, I think the future of the working environment will be much more entrepreneurial, so just experiment and, and remember that actually and when you build something, when you try to build something, it doesn't matter whether it can go well, it can go less well, but it's an experience that has completely developed you a lot. So you will find it advantageous in your CV again. The second thing I would say um, is learn, you know, on, on the ground is um, really focus on people. And I know you just mentioned that. Everybody told me that when we started. And I said, well, actually, why? I mean, we have a great idea. <laughs> the idea is the important thing is actually not sufficient. So in fact, the only thing that really matters is people, people, people. You cannot do it alone. You need people that really believe in what you're doing, and mindset is the most important thing. But fundamentally, you know, if you have a great team, 
you in a average idea, you might end up changing your idea being a great company. If you have a great idea, you don't have a great team, it's really difficult. So these are, I think, I cannot stress enough how important it is, which I, and I do that because um, for me it was a difficult transition to go through in terms of allocating my time and then realizing I need to spend much more time to, to really get the right people on board, and I think it's very important. A couple of um, things, really. Um, the first thing I always say to everybody is the answer is always no, unless you ask the question. And it's so easy to assume that the question or thing you want to get, the answer is going to be no, that you don't ask the question. And actually, if you ask the question, if you get a maybe, you're 50% better off than you're going to be without asking the question. And the reality is most of us in this room actually don't like saying no. So, you know, <coughs> go and ask the question. It's, it's, it's well worthwhile. And the second thing really is that when you put your business plan together and you spend hours doing the Excels and all the rest of it, and you've got it all sorted out and you know it's midnight again and you sat at your kitchen table, go to bed and then get up the next morning and multiply the time factor you put in for any of the tasks by two and a half and multiply the amount of money that you need to raise by the same factor of two and a half and then go and sell your business plan. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Uh, so I think it builds on, on what you were saying. I, my advice would be to be brave, not perfect. And I think that's particularly a message for um, women, given the, the way that we are raised. It's often um, kind of being judged on, on how perfect anything is that, that we put out into the world, whereas um, men, it's more about taking risks and being bold and you're kind of empowered to to go out there and be gutsy and that is just in general the stereotype but I think it does hold true quite often um, so really just being brave and going for it in terms like that could be anything from publishing a blog before you feel like it's really really perfect and, and putting your ideas out there to in order to attract the, the right team the right colleagues to um, starting to build your product, doing MVPs, going out there and testing it before you think that it's ready in order to start gathering that initial user feedback. Um, and in terms of really just making things happen, um, things will never be perfect. And a lot of people that we might think are perfect or had like, a really, like all of their uh, stuff together uh, actually don't. Um, the, the fact is they simply executed and went for it. Um, I think you know, my, my advice would be you, whatever you're going to do, you have the responsibility to be the expert in it. And with that, with that knowledge and with that understanding of whatever the space is, whatever your product is, um, you know, without kind of being too trite, comes comes great great power. You know, you can hire the smartest lawyers, the smartest consultants, the smartest advisors, but actually being close to whatever the market is that you're disrupting, that you're innovating in, is so so important. Um, we spend a lot of time on this panel talking about banking, um, just because I think that's everyone's default. Uh, thinking in terms of what disruption in financial services needs to do because everyone has a bank account. Um, but you know, I can't um, kind of undersell how innovative equity crowdfunding is in terms of you know, offering securities in unlisted companies from as little as 10 pounds to everybody. That just didn't exist um, seven, eight years ago. Um, it does now. And the reason that we have become successful in what we've done is because we have been really, really close 
to the existing system that was there, the rules that are around it. And you know, when I walked into this business, I did not expect that a lot of my job would be lobbying. I spent way too much time with governmental authorities, with regulators, with policymakers. But because I have been, this isn't because I'm a lawyer and it isn't because I've done it before, but I've been so close to what we have been trying to achieve myself, not the people that I'm paying, that I've been able to navigate that and work with the government, the policymakers, in achieving what not just CEDARS needs to achieve, but what the equity crowdfunding market needs to achieve. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we'll open the floor to questions. Um, you will need a microphone, so I'll run around and hand one to you. So your question first, please, and then yours. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, so the question that's more general. So I, I work for Deutsche Bank, and I've got a big team um, for technologists, developers, uh, product managers working for me. And um, I'm sitting at the business school, and I'm looking to get into fintech as an entrepreneur. Um, traditionally, banking has always been, you know, about you know lender borrow, lender bank borrower. So, where is the opportunity in your, the balance? Believe because I think, on one side, technology and replacing existing systems with more modern technology, from blockchain to smart contracts or everything, is one way. But there's also the proposition of crowdfunding, which is taking out the banks completely from you know borrower to lender. So, where do the panelists think the opportunity is? Where's the promised land? Where should I go? I don't know if he answered your question where should you go but but I spent a lot of time also advising messages really see the pre-crisis post-crisis and and I think there is one thing that for me is um, is drive will drive out of change and then maybe drives a bit the direction forward which is the following. So historically, you know, banks were really the current accounts. So where you put your current accounts were important. So fundamentally, the bank owns the customer because you put a current account there and you actually then do all the products and all the services with that bank. Because for one reason, it's asymmetry of information. So the assumption was, imagine, you know, when banks were in Florence, were born, nobody knows you. But if you have a current account with me, I know everything about you. So I'm I can give you the best condition. I know your credit quality and, and all that. So I, so the banks used to own the customer. Provided you put the, the current account in a certain bank, that's your home bank, right? And actually, done a lot of advice to banks, get the primary account for customers, and then you get the customer. I think what's happening, and for me, is a major trend. There are many others, but this is an important one because we have massive disruption, is the following, that this equation of where you put your money as a current account and is where you will do a lot of other things. This equation is now fundamentally broken. And it's broken, I think one of the more massive disruption reasons for that is the open banking, open banking PSC2. Today, so my kids, I am sure that they will put the money somewhere and they will even forget where that is, like a safe box somewhere, which comes with a lot of compliance. And then they will just go online and pick the service they want for payments, maybe pick transfer-wise, for mortgages, something else, for they will pick the best service that is completely unrelated to where they have the money. So, and actually, because all these all these other providers that can access the same data, because today you can access the same data regardless who you are, all of a sudden there is no privilege anymore. So then you should really think about okay, all of a sudden, you know, have, there is a current account somewhere, there are a lot of other services, and effectively, who wins? Effectively, who owns the customer? That's the point, right? Fundamentally, nobody wants a customer. And I think 
the people that will win in a way are the ones that are able to develop that relation with the customer based only on customer experience that will win any, on anything else. So think about what Amazon has done, right? So Amazon, uh, one or the other is the go-to place when you need to buy something online, the, the first thing. And that is the customer layer. But then behind Amazon, there are a lot of services right now. So the point is how whoever, you know, one of the services at the end, it is by now one or two companies that own the payments or the SME lending space. But you need, so customer experience and owning the customer is what would drive the majority of the value rather than being in the back end, right? So, uh, yeah, you should drive some implication for that, but um, it's a massive change, I think. That's my. I think that, um, as I said earlier, the, the whole industry is changing. Um, you know, Deutsche Bank, as well as any other than major banks around the world, they know that their net interest margin, most banks have known as NIMBANKS, right, is getting squeezed to hell. Uh, and if they happen to be in Europe where interest rates are negative, they're actually paying the European Central Bank for the privilege of holding their customers' money. So that's not a great business model. Um, and so if you then say, okay, how are we going to change that market? How are we going to do it? Do you then say, right, we're going to be a big bank, existing banks, we're going to go and mop up a load of fintechs to give us some agility that we haven't had before? Well, that doesn't really work because you can't put an agile business into a large business. It fails every single time you try and do it. So the only way to do it is to, is to change, change the market model, which is now the, the tools in the marketplace to do that exist. Um, I think that um, financial services are moving towards fast-moving <coughs> consumer goods in the way that they're delivered. And if you go into supermarkets and whatever, you know, you see countline products. These are products that the manufacturers produce. They put on the shelves for a couple of three years. They're three-year life cycles, and they drop away. So do we have an example of that? Mortgages. So already within financial services, we're starting to understand that the consumers, our customers, if we dare use that word, right, have a demand for change and choice. So that's the opportunity to basically garner that change and choice and deliver it to your customers. And with social media and all the power tools that are available now, you don't carry the huge market education costs, which historically you did. Because going to market with a new brand, as we've heard earlier on today, is massively expensive. But today, it's cheaper and cheaper because of if you use social media correctly. And we're actually already moving into that model, as you see, with the marketplace model in open banking. We're currently um, working and recently invested in a fintech called Bud, and where we're integrating that idea of a marketplace where you can go and find all the products you need in one place, not necessarily products just from First Direct or HSBC or any of our brands that we own. Um, but I would also say that artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and digital identity are three big things to, to watch for and areas that I would focus on if I were to start a startup now. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Very interesting discussion so far. My question is, I guess, primarily uh, directed at Nick, but feel, feel free to uh, chime in. Uh, it's about this, uh, you've exposed a bit uh, this David and Goliath dynamic between uh, large incumbent banks and small, nimble uh, fintech startups. And I think, at least if I am not mischaracterizing you, you've made this quite excellent point, right, that Sure, these fintechs are enabled by technology that wasn't there 20 years ago in a lot of the cases. But really, what uh, governs the speed of this development is the constraint of uh, regulation that for a long time has allowed sort of larger incumbents to squeeze out uh, competitors or 
at least stay in charge. And I mean, you, you've talked about, of course, how there's we have a lot more competition in the banking space and finance now than there used to be. But I'm curious to get your opinion on, I mean, have we gone far enough or are there still regulatory constraints that really uh, are uh, heading in this uh, sector? Thank you. Okay. Um, firstly, nobody planned what we have. All right. You've got to be really, really clever to create a cartel, and that hasn't happened. Um, in 1960, in the UK, we had 16 clearing banks. Through a process of natural market consolidation that happens so in every large market in the world, those smaller banks were consolidated into the larger banks. As a consequence of that, choice, service, and everything else just slipped, slipped away, which is what happens. Where we've now got to is there are a number of moving parts that you know, happened by accident. You know, the emergence of the Payment Services Directive in 2009, straight after the global financial crisis, I can tell you, was not planned. Right? Because nowhere through the legislative process, drafting process for the PSD1 was there any expectation that the global financial crisis would happen and the very organisations that were expected to support the new competition that came from PSD1 would not be able to support it because they're all verging on bankruptcy because they'd spent all their customers' money. So over the course of, you know, you then go 2014 all the rest of it, those, those positions have now changed and the market is substantially different. You know, the UK, we've got the Competition and Market Authority very, very strongly in favour of market change. Ten days ago, Clearbank received £60 million from RBS. I am absolutely delighted, you know, um, because that, is, that money is designed to push and create market change. We partner with an organisation called Tide, who is not a regulated business. They're providing business banking services off the back of our platform. They are delivering a service which the existing banks could deliver, but haven't delivered. That's, that's the change. And you know, if you go and have a focus group, I mean, tonight, if any of you've got kids, go home and say to your kids, say, how do you want to consume financial services? <laughs> All right, and after they say, you've been to the pub, Dad. You know, but, you know, have that conversation, or have it within your workplace, and say, okay, well, look, this is what we have today, all right? And actually, what do we really want there? So we'll put that on the other board. And the interesting thing is that 99% of the services you have on this board are on that board, but the organization of those services on that board is substantially different from that board. Thank you very much. We'll take a question from the center here. Thanks. A uh, question towards Dan. It was the... Uh, um, because you mentioned that you have to work in a place that you have to bridge the outside fintech startup with the existing HSBC, just wondering uh, if you can touch a bit on how does it feel to work with the inside organization? Thanks. You know, what's the, the uh, different perspective social norm to balance the internal regulation with how you cooperate with outside? So how am I helping them to... Yeah, I mean, you must have to both sides pushing back on what you want to push through, right? Yeah, so in, term, well, in terms of working with fintechs, we obviously get a lot of inbound interest be, being um, such a large bank with so many customers um, in so many geographies. Then internally as well, um, we're working with a lot of the teams to really understand what are the customer problems that they're trying to solve. 
and then have people on my team um, who uh, work with fintechs and go out and vet what would be the, the potential innovations or what exists out there or what is being developed in the market that could answer those specific problems. Um, I think certainly having um, introductions coming in or working with our networks of VCs and, and other startup accelerators. We're also a member of the Accenture FinTech Lab. That's a great way to see what's out there and, and to understand um, what different tech companies are working on um, and sort of ideate on what those opportunities could be. But personally, I think it, it's really helpful when we start from the inside, of course, being a team that do have that outside perspective um, and look at really what would be most helpful for the business and where is that future of that business going. Um, so we would do that, for example, holding workshops. We held one recently with the entire wealth team where um, we spent uh, a few weeks just looking at the trends in the market, where things could or couldn't go, what are some of the innovations that are happening there, and then really sitting down with them and those in internal experts um, and discussing and ideating on that. Um, hackathons have also been really great for, for doing that and, and kickstarting those ideas. So we've actually had some sort of you know, many, many startups or tech ideas that have come out from um, employees. Even actually, we recently had a team of lawyers win a hackathon and one of them taught themselves to code on the weekend. So, yeah, so it's really about, I think, engaging with those teams and really starting and focusing on the, the real customer problems. Quickly add to that, because um, bizarrely, we, in our engagement with asset managers and wealth managers, um, we have actually helped them facilitate uh, you know, roundtables and discussion forums with their, their customers. And it does seem to be that um, HSBC sounds like it's doing a really good job, but a lot of the traditional financial services institutions that we engage with often talk about innovation a lot inside. Uh, they talk about innovation a lot with fintechs or other technology providers. They don't seem to talk about innovation that much with their own customers. Now, I appreciate that's a massive generalization, but it is, it is really true in what we've seen over the last year or so. And, and we're in this rather bizarre opportunity, uh, this situation we've, we've found this bizarre opportunity, that we are um, looking at ways to innovate our product, wanting to touch traditional financial services uh, organisations' customers, and then facilitating that relationship where they haven't really trodden before, um, which, is, which was a real surprise to me. I think like co-creation and ideation working with customers directly is a really big theme and um, we are working on some things in that initiative but they should be announced soon. Great, thanks. So I think just to kind of round off the panel for today and, and thank the panelists afterwards, we've heard some great uh, anecdotes, some great experiences. Nick's uh, challenge <laughs> to ask the question, we've... Uh, heard uh, from Molo Finance. We're very excited to see that launch into the retail market very soon. Diana, your explanation of, of how fintech should be working with large businesses and the, the word fintech tourism for me is going to stick. I, kind of, I like that. Um, and to be close to the detail and kind of own that detail rather than pretending that you can be a step away from that. So fantastic insights from all of our panelists. Um, thank you very much for joining us. And I would encourage most of you, if you're around this afternoon, to grab these panelists. They are exceptional people to talk to, have a depth of knowledge that I haven't experienced before personally. Uh, so please do grab them for a cup of coffee. Thank you very much.